0: How do we really do church? What does God want from us as a people? Understand there's a lot of good churches in the history of America that started well but didn't finish well. If the Lord doesn't take me by the rapture, someday I'll be gone. And there may be some 18-year-old person who's listening to me today who will be a leader in this church and you have to decide what kind of a pastor will you want? What kind of a service will you want? Tens of thousands of churches in America changed how they do church because they had no
1: discernment. Hello, and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Broge. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Today our sermon is entitled, How to Do Church. Pastor Carl will be addressing the topic of the church as he explains why we do what we do and what a healthy Bible-believing church looks like today. Please join us in the book of Acts, chapter 20, verse 1, as we begin. Would you
0: take God's infallible, inerrant, and eternal word this morning and turn to Acts chapter 20? If you are joining us for the first time, we just completed a 10-week series in the life and time of Elijah the prophet. And sometime this fall, we will begin a new book of the Bible. But between now and then, I have some messages that God has given me to share with you. Now, when you read the book of Acts, where we are today, you discover that when the church was born in the day of Pentecost, it rapidly grew to thousands and thousands of people. On the birthday of the church alone, 3,000 people were saved. A few days later, 5,000 heads of household, excluding women and children. And church historians tell us that there was no single space in all of Jerusalem where 25-plus thousand people could gather together for worship. And so the size of the early church forced the Jerusalem believers to meet in multiple locations, and yet they are referred to as a single church. They met in homes, as you will see is true in the church at Rome, the church at Corinth, the church at Colossus. One church, one unified membership, but many locations. And in one sense, this is something that's not unique to the first century. Some ways we are experiencing that. We have people from our Bluffton-Hilton Head campus with us today. We have people from our Greys campus that are live streaming. We have folks in Graniteville, and some weeks we have people from all 50 states that are live streaming on sermonaudio.com. Three weeks ago when I preached, we had 26 foreign countries that were live streaming with us. So God has his people wherever they are in the world, but we are one church here locally and meeting in a number of different locations. But what is so sad, this is pre-COVID number, approximately 80% according to Pew Research no longer attend church on a regular basis. Americans have forsaken the living God. And so why do they not come? Well, there's a growing lawlessness. There's a growing love for darkness and for sin. That's certainly one reason. But a lot of churches, quite honestly, are irrelevant. So why do we do what we do? How do you do church? What should it look like? That's what our passage this morning examines. Acts chapter 20, I want to begin reading in verse 1. Follow along in your Bible. After the uproar had ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and when he had exhorted them in taking his leave of them, he left to go to Macedonia. When he had gone through those districts and had given them much exhortation, he came to Greece, and there he spent three months... And when a plot was formed against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia and He was accompanied by Sopater of Berea, the son of Pyrus, and by Aristocus and Secundus of the Thessalonians, and Gaius of Derby and Timothy and Tychius and Trophimus of Asia. But these had gone on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. We sailed from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread and Came to them at Troas within five days, and there we stayed seven days. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul began talking to them, intending to leave the next day, and he prolonged his message until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered together, and there was a young man named Eutychus sitting on the windowsill, sinking into a deep sleep. And as Paul kept on talking, he was overcome by sleep and fell down from the third floor and was picked up dead. But Paul went down and fell upon him, and after embracing him, he said, Do not be troubled, for his life is in him. When he had gone back up and had broken the bread and eaten, he talked with them a long while until daybreak and then left. They took away the boy alive and were greatly comforted. It's Sunday morning you're thinking about going to church somewhere, what will you look for? If you find the more traditional church service boring, maybe you would like one of the newer trends that are available. You want to sit back and maybe be entertained. And so you might want to go to what's called a secret-sensitive, user-friendly church. The so-called user-friendly church was started by two key pastors about 40 years ago, where they went door-to-door with people in their respective communities. And they asked the same question, interestingly, why don't you attend church? And what is it that you'd like to see in a church? And then they built their church services based on the responses they received. They discovered that people did not like an old-fashioned sermon from the Bible, the kind that Jesus preached, the kind the apostles preached, the kind that were done in Nehemiah's day, They also said that pulpits were imposing, pulpits like this. And so they either preached from a stool or a chair or sometimes a glass podium. They said they didn't like a lot of the hymns because they were too hard to understand, even though the early church, as you read Paul's letter to Timothy... And as you read the psalms, you discover that's what the church sung. They sung largely initially the psalms, though new songs were always created. In addition, in wanting to make it non-offensive, these pastors said, well, we'll incorporate secular music into uh, the service, some contemporary Christian music, some contemporary Christian music is very good. Some people say, I just like the old psalms. That's ignorance. Just to like only the old psalms. Because God said, sing a new song unto the Lord. So some churches think they're spiritual if they just sing things from the 17th century. No, we need to be sensitive to the Lord. There are good godly men and women who have created some wonderful songs. But there's a lot of contemporary Christian music today that it's worthless. The theology is horrendous. But because these pastors decided that expository preaching as the adherents that they surveyed told them was just too difficult for them, they stopped teaching directly from the Bible, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. Now, the numbers that it produced was impressive. In thousands of churches modeled themselves after churches like Willow Creek. In fact, the Willow Creek Association started by Bill Hybels, who is now out of the ministry because for two decades he was compromised morally, yet leading the church. They have 13,000 churches in their association. They promote their worship service with these words. They advertise Willow Creek's worship services have been guided by surveys, market research, and the felt needs of members of the congregation. Music tends to be contemporary, and dance and other art forms are incorporated into the experience. Willow Creek does not have a customary preaching pulpit or traditional church architecture, and so there are no crosses or other religious symbols. And so, many of these churches, you go into them, there is no cross on the wall because they don't want it to be offensive. And so, unfortunately, they went and asked unchurched people, largely unbelievers, why they didn't go to church, and they built the service around them. They should have been asking, God, what do you want in a church service? See, not all growth is real. We saw that in South Carolina with Perry Noble, And some of the wicked things he taught from the pulpit, and I had pastors coming to me, and even members of this church, why don't we do some things like Perry Noble? Sadly, he's out of the ministry for all practical purposes. You see, we need to ask, what does God want? What's pleasing to the Lord? Not all growth is biblically-based growth if you don't like the user-friendly church, you might want to go to a church that's styled on Bethel or Hillsong. Both churches part of the new apostolic reformation movement. The emphasis in those churches, unlike the traditional charismatic and Pentecostal churches where they tend to simply emphasize the sign gifts are what they call power encounters. And so people will literally shake and sometimes faint People will bark like dogs. People will laugh uncontrollably. And they argue that when people come into their churches and they see these power encounters, that they will readily want to become followers of the Lord Jesus. So Bill Johnson, the founder of Bethel Church in Redding, California, he says, and I quote, none of us has a full grasp of Scripture, But we all have the Holy Spirit. He is our common denominator who will always lead us into truth. But to follow Him, we must be willing to follow off the map to go beyond what we know. Now, contextually, if you read His words, He's saying the Bible is important, but we need more than the Bible. We need to go beyond the Bible, that the starting point is the Scripture, but they argue for the sensitivity of the Holy Spirit to give you new revelation and fresh direction. And look, if I believed that, that this would, these words, Latin words, would not be on the front of this pulpit, sola scriptura. I'd be Roman Catholic, because in Catholicism, they say you go beyond Scripture that when the pope speaks ex cathedra on an issue of faith and morals he speaks with the same authority as the bible itself but we don't need to be looking for power encounters in fact jesus told a parable of one such man who thought that way he dies the rich man he goes to hell not because he's rich but because he's an unbeliever and in the parable he reasons i've got five brothers who are lost If you would just send someone up from the dead, then they would believe. And Jesus said, no, that's not true. That power encounter will not convert them. He said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, no, Father Abraham, if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, if they do not listen to the Bible, Moses and the prophets... They will not be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. The point of the parable is if they refuse the scripture, they won't respond to any dramatics that you can do. In fact, a short time later, Jesus raised the man with the same name, Lazarus, from the dead. And when the Jewish leaders sought it, they only sought to kill him all the more. And so the result of the miracle didn't result in conversion. And so these are the trends today in the modern church. And three decades where this has been the major trend in evangelicalism has not produced a godly culture, but a godless culture, where we have some of the largest churches in our history with the least amount of influence and impact. People say, well, we're indifferent to too much heavy Bible teaching. We're indifferent to theology. We're indifferent to doctrine because after all, doctrine divides. Yes, it does divide. Truth from error, light from darkness, fact from fiction, the saved from the lost. And today we have more and more man-centered, self-centered rather than bibliocentric churches Churches that are Christ-centered based on the revelation of Scripture. So this morning, we're asking and answering the question, how do we really do church? What does God want from us as a people? Understand, there's a lot of good churches in the history of America that started well but didn't finish well. If the Lord doesn't take me by the rapture, someday I'll be gone. And there may be some 18-year-old person who's listening to me today who will be a leader in this church. And you have to decide what kind of a pastor will you want? What kind of a service will you want? Tens of thousands of churches in America changed how they do church because they had no discernment. And the devil was so crafty and so wise and that he got Bible preaching out of the pulpit. Oh, yes, Hybels and Warren and Perry Noble and others would use three or four verses. Most of the time when I heard it, I would cringe because they were out of context. But you cannot grow people with that kind of preaching. God created within the Scriptures how the Scriptures are to be presented. So here we are in the book of Acts chapter 20. Now, I know some of us are new to the Bible and you're coming blindly into this text of Scripture. So let me bring you into the context. If you read the book of Acts, it really unfolds the first 30 years of church history. Jesus gave us the outline for the book of Acts in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem. That's Acts 1 through 7. It covers two years' time based on the chronological clues that Luke drops in there you come to Acts chapter 8 Jesus said not only will you be witnesses in Jerusalem but you'll be witnesses in Judea and Samaria and so there's a persecution that arises in the church and the saints are scattered and with it goes the gospel that's Acts chapter 7 through uh, 12 and in 7 through 12 it covers approximately 13 years of church history When you come to Acts 13, you have the last 15 years of the book of Acts, 13 all the way through the end of the book. So you have the church started, you have the church scattered, then you have the church spread to the remotest part of the world. And it's spread largely through, as Luke records for us, three missionary journeys and two imprisonments that Paul has. Uh, let me bring you geographically to where we are this morning. Here's a map that might be helpful to you. Down on the right-hand lower corner, you'll see a place called Antioch of Syria. You'll see another Antioch in the middle of the map. That's Pisidian Antioch. Just like there's two Bethlehems in the Bible, there's two Antiochs in the Bible. There's a number of cities that are come given by the same name. Antioch of Syria, which if you went south, you'd hit Jerusalem, that was Paul's home sending church. That was the church that prayed for Paul, cared for Paul, financed Paul and his ministry. So he leaves Antioch of Syria and he makes his way through the Galatian reason. You remember he was from Tarsus. He did some follow up in places like Derby, Lystra and Iconium. Those were churches that he had established on another missionary journey. Uh, He travels all the way across um, Europe, uh, through Asia, and he makes his way to Ephesus. The Bible is highly condensed in many places, and God's goal here is to get us to Ephesus, and he doesn't tell us a whole lot. But one of the things that you discover in Paul's ministry is he was not only interested in winning people to Christ, but helping them to grow and to solidify And so he would often go back and he would do follow-up and he would answer questions and they would send him letters with questions and he would write books based on that. When you come to Ephesus, um, some of you have been with me to Ephesus. It's a really pretty well-preserved ancient city. This was the main street of Ephesus. Ephesus. There's pieces of it that are left, but uh, you can get a feel for what it was like in the Apostle Paul's day. Uh, Here's the theater in Ephesus. When you read Acts chapter 19, you discover Paul goes to uh, Ephesus and he starts preaching the gospel. And, of course, there was a goddess that was worshipped in Ephesus, Artemis, also known as Diana. And they sold these little shrines and people would make their pilgrimage to Ephesus and one of the souvenirs they'd want to take with them would be a shrine. Well, one of the problems was if so many people were getting saved, The sales of these shrines were collapsing. And some of the folks were really upset what Paul was doing to their businesses. You know, wherever Paul went, he seemed to make things happen. Either made people glad or mad or sad, but something happened. Uh, Either a revival or a riot or both. Uh, This particular auditorium or theater, it seats 25,000 people. It's incredibly preserved. The platform at the bottom is about the size of this stage, just a little bit bigger. Um, it was covered in silt and dirt for probably 1500 years, and in 1869, they found it. Remember, there's riot is going on. Two of Paul's missionary friends, Gaius and Aristarchus, are brought into it. People are going nuts. They want to tear these men apart. Paul wants to go in, if you remember, and rescue his friends, and the disciples have to pull him back, and then God intervenes. And but Ephesus was no easy city in which to minister. And Paul spent more time in the city of Ephesus than in any other single place. He spent three years there. And rightly so, because where it was located geographically becomes very critical to reaching both Asia and Europe for Christ. Uh, Paul, in 1 Corinthians, describes what it was like. Let me read to you 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 9. It says, a wide door for effective service has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. He's describing his experience in Ephesus. In 1 Corinthians 15, he says, I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus. Of course, that's a figure of speech. He was not as a Roman citizen, literally called to fight off wild beasts. But he's simply saying there in Ephesus, there were some vicious, bloodthirsty people who treated me basically like an animal. And by the way, if you're not familiar with the riot, maybe go home this afternoon, read Acts 19. It's really an exciting chapter of Scripture. But when you step into chapter 20, the conflict is over. Peace has been reestablished, the church is safe, and now the Lord has led Paul to move on. Again, look at chapter 20 and verse 1. After the uproar had ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and when he had exhorted them and taken his leave of them, he left to go to Macedonia. So there's a rather sizable body of believers after three years of service, and he gathers them together and he exhorts them. I have that word exhorted circle in my Bible. It's the Greek verb parakaleo, para. We get our word parallel from it to be call, something that's alongside of something else. Kaleo, our word call comes in, from it so the word exhortation means to call alongside to offer some aid or some instruction or some help it's not surprising that the holy spirit in noun form is described as a parakletos he is the one who comes alongside and he helps us you know when god saves us he doesn't abandon us he gives us the spirit of god to help us so that we can walk with god and by the way parenthetically all christians have the responsibility to be exhorters. We're going to study in the next few weeks the subject of spiritual gifts, and it's one of the 20 spiritual gifts listed in the New Testament, but it's a common responsibility we all have. Most of us, for instance, know Hebrews 3.13, but encourage one another, same word, parakaleo, Hebrews 3.13, there we go, okay, now I'm beating you. (laughs) Encourage one another, Day after day as long as it is still called today so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. There's an assumption, by the way, in this verse that we have the kind of relationship with other born-again Christians that on a regular basis we can be encouraging one another. And without that encouragement, we dry up. Listen to what he said in Hebrews 10. Not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging, same word, parakaleo, encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day. What day? The day of Christ's second coming drawing near. The second coming is, as you know, a prophecy-driven event. The rapture is not. But as you see the day drawing near, the prophecies being fulfilled for the second coming, and there's an assumption that you can see those things, then you recognize all the more your need for fellowship. Why? Because as we move to the end of the age, there's not going to be a revival. God's word is clear. There'll be no revival at the end of the age. There'll be a great apostasy. And there are things that are unfolding in our day that should remind us that we're moving towards the end of the age. One, Israel is in the land. That's not by accident. God has brought seven million plus Jews into the land from a hundred nations around the world. He said he would do that in the latter days. We are mimicking the days of Noah, days of lawlessness, days of drunkenness, days of, of violence. We are mimicking the days of Lot, days of homosexual perversion. These are the things that God said would be in place as we move to the end of the age. And so Paul exhorts God's people. Look at verse 2 of Acts 20. When he had gone through those districts and had given them much exhortation, literally, he exhorted them with many words, he came to Greece. Now, when you exhort someone, you you fire them up, so to speak. You encourage them. You give them God's perspective with God's truth. And exhorting someone is really lighting kind of a fire in their life. Sometimes fire illumines, and it moves someone to repentance. Sometimes fire awakens. And it helps somebody who's complacent to do something, to move to action. Sometimes it warms the weary soul, and it brings great comfort. So, exhortation, we usually synonymize the word with encouragement. But there's two sides to it. There's a rebuking side of exhortation in the New Testament, and there's the encouraging side. Both aspects are used in this word parakaleo. So, let me just say, we're all called to be exhorters, and when you think this week about exhorting someone, first and foremost, if you're married and you have children, it should be your own children. Those are your like most important disciples that you have. You know, Audrey and I learned some valuable lessons having been in campus ministry for over a decade. And God privileged us to lead literally hundreds of students to Christ. And one of the things that we learned was that so many of these students came from homes, some even Christian homes, where there was no encouragement. Even a secular home, sometimes there was no real encouragement. And what happens with a a young person is if they're not encouraged by their parents, they're gonna get that encouragement somewhere. They're starved for encouragement. And sometimes the encouragement they get is of the wrong kind. And So when you think of discipleship, you shouldn't think first and foremost the guy down the street or your neighbor, or your guy, your friend at work, we should think first and foremost, our children. Those are our number one disciples that God has entrusted to us.
1: As Pastor Carl said, we shouldn't look for what we want in a church, but rather we should ask ourselves, what does God want and what is pleasing to him regarding how we do church? If you enjoyed today's message, you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search of Scriptures at 877 877- 877 787-7478 and requesting program HTC 020. Also, maybe you would like to listen to Dr. Brogy's messages or series offline, in the car or on a walk. You can do that by downloading the Search the Scriptures app found on the Apple and Google Play Store. Just type Search the Scriptures and look for the blue icon with the white triangle. On the app you can download messages to listen to anytime, anywhere. We hope that you will join us tomorrow as we continue to search the scriptures.